You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Huawei fires the sales manager arrested for espionage in Poland and says that if he was spying, he was freelancing. Ryuk ransomware now looks more like a criminal than a state-sponsored operation, and its big-game hunting has pulled in almost $4 million since August. Access control system zero days have been found, and a lawsuit is likely to set some precedents concerning what counts as cyber war. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, January 14th, 2019. Suspicion that Huawei serves as a reliable partner of China's intelligence services seems likely to grow, the Washington Post notes. In addition to all five eyes, Japan, Poland, Norway, and the Czech Republic have all recently expressed varying degrees of official skepticism about the hardware manufacturer's reliability as a partner. Other Chinese manufacturers, notably ZTE, are also coming in for their share of suspicion, but Huawei is first among equals when it comes to security worries. The recent arrests in Poland are the latest events to provoke concerns about Huawei in particular. Huawei has fired Wang Weijing, the manager who was arrested on espionage charges. The company denied involvement in the alleged espionage and said that the arrest and Wang's alleged actions served only to bring the company into disrepute. This is a very different response from the one on display concerning the arrest last month of the company's CFO, Meng Wanzhou, in Vancouver. Huawei had been supportive of Ms. Meng, but they were quickly to toss Wang overboard. In fairness to Huawei, the company's claims of not being involved were lent some credence by official Polish sources, who spoke over the weekend about the espionage appearing to have represented individual effort and initiative, as opposed to corporate policy. The AP says the Polish national arrested alongside a Huawei executive had formerly held senior cybersecurity posts in three Polish agencies, the Interior Ministry, the Office of Electronic Communications, which is a telecommunications regulatory body, and International Security Agency, a counterintelligence organization. The suspect, identified only as Piotr D., was at the time of his arrest working for the telecommunications company Orange, an outfit that had been partnering with Huawei in the 5G rollout. Both Mr. Wang and Piotr D. have asserted their innocence and declined to provide testimony. Similarities between code used by Ryuk Ransomware and the Lazarus Group's Hermes tool led to tentative suspicion that North Korean state-directed actors, like the Lazarus Group, might have been behind Ryuk as well. But states and hoods sell and buy in the same black market, so code sharing is not particularly surprising, 
nor does it amount to more usually than modest circumstantial evidence. ZDNet says the growing consensus among cybersecurity firms is now that Ryuk is run by Russian organized criminal gangs. Ryuk, recently famous for having disrupted newspaper printing in the U.S., has been an interesting case. The criminals behind it are believed to have pulled in some $3.7 million in Bitcoin payments since August. FireEye and CrowdStrike have tracked some 52 payments over that period. The ransomware has been distributed to a significant extent by TrickBot, but unlike the indiscriminate and opportunistic pattern common in other ransomware attacks, Ryuk engages in what CrowdStrike calls big-game hunting. It will lie dormant until it finds a target it can hurt badly enough to prompt a big payoff. There's a growing call in the U.S. for meaningful privacy regulation and reform as frustration builds over data breaches and misuse of personal information. Vijaya Kaza is chief development officer at Lookout, and she maintains that companies who take privacy seriously could find themselves with a competitive advantage. Privacy is becoming increasingly important for consumers. Obviously, from organizations' perspective, where we are today is it is a program-driven approach um, relegated to compliance teams and in response to typically new laws or regulations, right? As a result of that, product teams are reluctantly basically doing the minimum they need to do to check the box and um, avoid any fines or penalties. Um, So that basically changes uh, privacy into just a loss avoidance type of approach as opposed to really thinking about what can privacy do for us and how do we turn this into a strength and um, really take care of customer concerns um, and use it as a differentiator. Yeah, so let's dig into that some. How can privacy be a competitive advantage? Yeah, as I was saying, you know, if if we are trying to be uh, in this mode of loss avoidance, Obviously, the fines and penalties and damage to brand reputation are the only ones that you are thinking about, right? Um, Vendors often really compete on features and capabilities, um, but they don't pay as much attention to privacy because, again, it is a compliance checkbox. But if you flip it on its head and really lead with privacy first, it can help build a mode for your product and differentiate your product because it now becomes a mainstream capability or functionality that your product can offer uh, and therefore differentiate yourself from competition. In fact, um, by doing this, uh, it goes beyond loss avoidance and really getting to what can it do for business for uh, bringing additional revenues and additional um, top line and bottom line benefits. Um, And there are many studies that have been done on this. Um, recently, Cisco did a study, a uh, privacy benchmark study. Um, at that study and others have shown that addressing privacy the right way reduces the length of sales cycle um, by eliminating any kind of customer objections that you get and also help you win deals, right? Especially in uh, privacy-sensitive industries like healthcare and financial services and government, that can be huge, We often see that uh, customers have many objections as they're going through the sales cycle. You know, how do you store data? What do you do with our data, right? So by addressing that head on and really making that a a product functionality, uh, you can take care of that and reduce those sales cycles. And obviously, uh, leading with privacy also shows to your customers that you care about their concerns and that increases customer loyalty and satisfaction 
Um, and therefore, you know, if you're looking at activations, retention rates, and renewals, all of those will be automatically better. Um, and uh, it also improves brand reputation at the same time. So um, all in all, addressing privacy the right way with privacy first approach will definitely bring um, a lot of benefits to the business and, and really take that um, problem and burden and convert that into an opportunity. Starting with people is the right way to think about privacy. Um, because unlike security, privacy is not solved by technology, right? It is a complex people, culture, and organizational issue um, and really requires a cultural shift across the organization. Um, every employee in the organization needs to understand how important privacy is to their customers and also think about, okay, privacy is not just a burden, but I really can turn this into a differentiation as we talked about before. That's Vijaya Kaza from Lookout. Researchers at security firm Tenable disclosed today that they've found several zero days in Identicard's premises access control system. These include hard-coded credentials, allowing admin access to the system, weak hashing, a hard-coded password, and use of default database credentials. Tenable says Identicard hasn't responded to its private disclosures, and that as of last week, no patches were available. Tenable advises that users should make sure their premises instances aren't connected to the Internet. Not Petya hit candy and cookie company Mondelez hard, but their insurer, Zurich, declined to pay their claim on the grounds that Not Petya, which Western governments publicly blamed on Russia, amounted to an act of war. Mondelez, a big confectioner that owns the well-known Oreo and Cadbury brands, is now suing Zurich for $100 million. Bloomberg says this shows the downside of official attribution. Insurance policies of all kinds routinely exclude coverage for acts of war. Wars represent the prospect of the sort of catastrophic damage that would swiftly exceed the insurer's market capacity. Thus, war exclusion clauses are routine in the insurance industry. It is possible to obtain some forms of war risk insurance, but it's a lot more expensive and harder to get than other forms of coverage. Thus, war exclusion clauses are standard because of the likelihood that losses in wartime would exceed the insurer's ability to pay, not because a particular actor, a state let's say, was the agent that caused the damage. Cyber attacks present an interesting case. They certainly can represent a form of warfare and have a clear space on the spectrum of conflict where they've already appeared in hybrid campaigns like the one Russia has been waging for some years against Ukraine. On the other hand, it seems instructive that NotPetya, to return to this particular case, initially represented itself as, and was briefly taken to be, a ransomware campaign undertaken by criminal gangs for common criminal financial motives. While the losses companies sustained were substantial, they still seem closer to a big pileup on Interstate 5 than they do to Sherman's march to the sea. Part of the issue, as Fifth Domain points out, is who gets to say what counts as an act of war. Formal declarations of war have been more or less out of fashion since the United Nations authorized that police action in Korea back in 1950, and several states, the U.S. included, have publicly discussed their ability to conduct cyber operations that don't amount to acts of war. There's a good chance that the Mondelez suit against Zurich will establish some precedents in this regard. 
everybody. want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, and he's also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. We wanted to touch today on passwords and some of the new recommendations from NIST. They recently finalized their new guidelines, and there, there's some uh, interesting changes here. What, what, uh, what's your take on this? So I like I like this uh, this guidance a lot. Uh, number one, they have said that you should have a maximum length of characters of at least 64 characters. Mm. Uh, I was changing my passwords on one of my financial websites the other day and was shocked to find I can only have a 24-character password on that site. Hmm. It's a good idea to allow them as much space as they want. Right. One of the uh, other things is they, they talk about restricting passwords from previous breaches. Uh, Amazon has actually already been doing this. We had a story a couple months ago, I think, about people having Amazon contact them and saying, your password's weak. And the way we speculated that that was happening was they were just using a known password list and cracking passwords. Right. And contacting people whose passwords they could crack with that list. So in other words, if I try to use a new password at a site, and if it's a, if, if it's a password that's on one of the compromised password lists, right. it'll say, get... this is, try again. Right, exactly. And, and that's great because if that password hash is leaked, that's going to be one of the passwords that gets cracked pretty quickly. Right. Uh, because it's on a list. Right. Uh, another thing is I really appreciate in this is they say let users enter any characters on this. Uh, if, if they can hit the keyboard and enter that character, they should be able to use that character in their password. Hmm. I always am wary of sites that don't let me use special characters. I'm concerned that the reason they're not letting me use special characters is because they're afraid of a SQL injection attack, uh, which means that 
at some point in time, or maybe even now, they're not hashing my password. Because regardless of what I enter, a hashed password will come out with a known set of characters that will not be useful in creating a, a SQL injection attack. Hmm. And that's the information you put into the database, not my actual password. I see. Allowing users to enter any characters is great because it increase, increases the key space, as we like to say. Um, but the other thing I want to touch on here that's kind of an important distinction and, and something that's a little nuanced that may not be apparent is they say that you should no longer force users to change their passwords. Right. Okay. Sounds right. good to me. It, it does sound good. And the rationale for that is? The, the research has shown that if you force users to change their passwords, that they will pick weak passwords and just slightly modify the passwords over time. Right. Okay, but if you let them pick strong passwords and don't force them to change it unless there's been a breach or something or some other motivating factor. Actually, the NIST standard cites two motivating factors in the articles I'm reading. I can't actually access the NIST standard right now because of the shutdown. The government shutdown. Right. Yeah. Um, but it says if, if you have a known breach or if the user requests a password change. Right? I see. Yeah. Now that's an important distinction right there because I recommend that people still change their passwords on sites that they care about regularly. Yeah. For example, any financial institution that you do business with, you should change the password on that with some regularity that you're comfortable with the risk level on. Okay. And that is different from being forced to have your password changed. In my workflow, I'm thinking of a person who's using a password manager, so they're they're always producing a random 20-character password. They're not really remembering the password. Right. And they're just going to go ahead and, and change the password every, like, six months or maybe every year. Mm-hmm. Forcing users to change their password after you know that there's a breach protects the users against the known breach. But changing your password with some regularity protects you against the unknown breach. Huh. So the, the site may have been breached or, or the password may have been leaked out, and attackers are immediately going to start cracking those passwords. You have some amount of time if you have a good complex password, but you don't have forever. Huh. And you can change that password, and, by, and then when they do crack your password in a year or so, or maybe in 10 years, your password will no longer be valid because you will have changed it. I see. That's a, that's an interesting nuance. Yeah, it is. So so put yourself on a regular schedule. Set set a reminder in your calendar. Hey, it's it's new password day. Right. It's it, well, or if you use a password manager like the one I use, Password Safe, that's free and open source, then you can actually set those passwords to expire, and your password manager will remind you to change them. Huh. All right. No, that's an interesting insight. That that is that's that is a subtle nuance, but it does make a difference there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. <laughs>